Uh, there's a great maturing of the human heart in the face of many paradoxes. So I wanted to um, explore some of these um, paradoxes in relationship to this practice. I wanted to begin with a poem by Ryokan, um, the great Japanese hermit monk who lived from 1758 to 1831. He said, what, what might I leave you as my lasting legacy? Flowers in springtime, the cuckoo singing all summer, the yellow leaves of autumn. And you can include in that your own body sensations, starlight. You know, it's 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 um. You can feel such a such a deep meta that he has for life, and yet knowing what will be left after he leaves. What's the legacy? The flowers, you know, the autumn leaves. It's, it's so beautiful. I have found that um, the, the deepest teachers I have had um, always seem to represent that paradox of such, like, such an ability to, to deeply connect. In fact, the happy Sayadaw will lean over when he's talking and he's like this, you know. But then, if there's no talking, and in some ways, you know, there's a, there's a preference for not talking, really. You know, when there's not talking, he just goes way back. It's like his seat goes way back, so he's like that. <laughs> he does the way back in, quiet, and then he's way forward and way back. It's just, it's just so paradoxical, yeah, this, this life where we are attempting to so be so deeply present, so deeply connected, and so non-attached. In some ways, I feel that right effort in this practice is learning what love is. And, and learning what wisdom is and being willing to be humble enough to um, humble and quiet enough to uh, let like what's happening now in your practice where you'll feel like at times um, it will just kind of take off by itself and then you'll lose it <laughs> and then you know it's humbling and then you know it'll come back and you'll feel home again. And, and just that process is so humbling, but so um, noble. I um, used to like to try to fit into my life taking some kind of course 
uh, because I know that when you try to really learn something new, it's humbling. Uh, I don't manage to fit that in anymore, but I have great memories of um, like taking a basketry class at uh, the Academy of Art in Honolulu. And I, I thought we were going to just kind of leave a few little baskets, but it turned out to be an incredibly serious course with expert basket uh, weavers. And, you know, I would have all these <laughs> things outside of our porch, you know, just just frustrated. Uh, and I, I had this thought, you know, no wonder... You don't see everybody making baskets. You know? It's just like hard. <laughs> so then I decided to try a flower arranging course because I thought, well, that's more you know something I think I can manage, and it's not going to require so much effort. Um, and uh, there was a like an old. Japanese school of flower arranging that had been going on for a long time, many generations. Um, So I was a rare introduction to this group that had been going on a long time. Very old women were in the class, uh, and everyone spoke Japanese. Uh, No one spoke English. So I kind of went into the back of the class and how this teacher taught was not through words. She taught through um, example. So she would make this flower arrangement, and then you were supposed to copy it. And she would come around to people's places and just sort of go, and uh, then you were supposed to be able to repeat it. <laughs> and it was um, very structured, a lot of form. Uh, and in this particular class actually helped me in my life uh, and all the years I practiced with the teacher, Sayada Upandita, because he didn't explain anything. Uh, and he would make me make all these mistakes over and over again, um, just go down blind alley after blind alley after blind alley. No explanations, but really having to learn for yourself. Um, so I realized at that point that that was actually a teaching style. But at the time of this flower arranging class, I just, I just, I just wanted to say, I need more <laughs> explanation. You know, I'm not getting this. But I just kept going with it. And I, I feel like I actually learned quite a bit in that process. Um, I couldn't tell you what I had learned. Um, but then I decided, you know, I think I need something different. And I found this teacher that was so much more like my type. Um, And she, um, in some ways, she did a style of flower arranging that was very unique. But it was like, um, very much like the metta practice that I learned. And what she asked you to do was to not make a flower arrangement. And it was very hard. It was harder than the other class. So you'd have these flowers, and then you had your vase, and you had to pick up a flower and be with it for a very long time, quietly. And you had to find the most beautiful angle of that flower, in your, in your opinion. You know? so you, and if you did it too quickly, she would be upset at you. You really had to be with that flower for a really long time. And then without any um, attempt at trying to do something, you just put it in your vase. 
Um, and this is with one of those frogs, you know, that you could make it stand up in. And that wouldn't be so hard, the first one. And then the second one you had to put in, it was the same process. You had to stay with this flower for a really long time, find the most beautiful angle, and without trying to compare it with the other flower or trying to make any arrangement, you had to put it in the vase. That was harder. And then by the third flower, I'm telling you, to, to not look at your like arrangement and just to look at your flower and to just put that third one in, she'd always be like, Michelle, you're cheating! And I'm like, you bet I am. <laughs> I mean, I just couldn't, like, oh, and no one could. It was just so interesting, like, class after class after class of just learning to trust. And learning to trust that it was the most beautiful angle that mattered, and that that would be what would happen, like it, would, and that there would be a relationship between those those um, goodnesses. So this being able to take the time. So you know, it's taking the time to be with ourselves and to like be. You know, what I love about being here is just like that singularness of an experience of like really being with a bird or just really being with a meadow or just really being with a ponderosa pine. You know, it's just there's something so powerful about having that time and having such a pristine environment. And that, and that that allows one to tune into the feeling essence of whatever being you're with, including yourself, and how much goodness, you know, the goodness of being with the earth itself. I don't think I have to explain who Vaclav Havel um, is and was, but he was a great statesman in Czechoslovakia that had been through so much um, horrible stuff and became president. Uh, He said, I am not interested in why people commit evil. I want to know why they do good. So I think sometimes... um, When you think about finding the most beautiful angle, uh, it isn't meant to be Pollyanna love. It, it's it, you can see why Steve and I so much emphasize all four Brahma Viharas, and we'll move into the equanimity as time goes on more. Uh, and we have to have that. We have to play that dance of really encouraging you to stick with one, but we have to introduce the others enough to get a taste of how, if you stick with one, all four will develop. And that we actually can't do one without understanding all four. So that, you know, the question this morning about, from Elaine, about, you know, (laughs) you know, may your joy endure and, you know, last forever, it's like, that's a wish. You know, it's like, it's again that sense of, um, in the purity of, may you be safe and protected. But there's also 
And um, assumption that we understand that life is changing and that life is a stream of pleasant, under, unpleasant neutral, that the, that the metta wish is infused with wisdom, that the compassion wish, wish is infused with wisdom, that the empathetic joy wish is infused with wisdom. And, um, of course, that takes a lifetime of practice. So the, the, the near enemy or the experience that might seem so much like loving kindness is a kind of optimism without understanding a kind of baseline reality. <laughs> or it could be naivete. Or it could be wishful thinking denial um, but that also uh, they also those kind of naivete denial are often the, like the near enemy of uh, equanimity the deep, the deep acceptance um, in the deep acceptance of equanimity the heart is is connected in indifference the heart is disconnected it can look like there's accepting, but it's actually pretending. And there's a disconnect. There's a, um, there's a being, the black-footed ferret, that used to live in this area, and it um, was almost decided that it was extinct twice by the U.S. government. Um, and um, I've been reading a book by a few other people with Jane Goodall about all the species that are making a comeback but actually are coming back through being being um, almost extinct and being bred in captivity uh, and it's powerful because some are making it so this is a Description from a man named Brent Houston of uh, with one of the last uh, wild black-footed ferrets in the world. So he's describing this to Jane Goodall. Brent Houston told me of the time when a young black-footed ferret approached him as he sat near the den in the first light of day. Without warning, he approached my foot and sniffed my hiking boot. I thought the pounding of my heart would scare him, but I remained still desperate for some sort of connection. He looked right up at me and at my face, into my eyes. And then the most extraordinary thing happened. This young ferret, looking up at me with his big round eyes, put his little black foot on my hiking boot and held it there. I looked right at him, and he looked at me, and he saw me smile. It was one of the most satisfying moments in my long career of observing wildlife. Here was one of the last black-footed ferrets in the world reaching out to me, trusting me, perhaps even asking for my help. You know, and I think what makes me tear up, it's just like I know how hard these beings are working to save these beings. You know, it's just like it's so 
hard, you know, and just that, that you can just feel like how simple that is, right? That this being touched his boot. And, and to say, <laughs> it's the mo- one of the most satisfying moments in my long career. You know, it's just, um, and that's what I'm trying to say about being here. There'll be something so profound that touches us, that's so simple. And it, it's that desperation for connection that we all have, and it's so important. It's, it's our lifeline to meaning. And then this is something, this is um, the epilogue of her book because it was reprinted. And she said, of course, inevitably, there are those who have criticized me for burying my hand, head in the sand, ignoring the facts concerning rate of forest loss, ocean acidification, species loss, pollution, industrialization, and all the other threats to the natural world and the life forms that inhabit it. I am not... And you can just feel her, like, I am not, and I've stated this several, (laughs) many times throughout the book, the overall picture is grim. So she's being criticized for, like, writing a book about some of the species that are actually getting saved. You know, that cynicism and despair, just like, of course, you know, it's like, of course that happens, and yet... Um, all she's trying to do is show that some are actually making it. Interesting. So the reason I'm bringing this up, again, is that that paradox that we all face of, in life, it's like when you have a day of practice and you see actually how hard it is to be liberated and to liberate ourselves and how, how hard it is to actually be present and what what unconditional love is truly or whatever but it's just like how worth it it is to try so I wanted to read two more things that kind of to me touch that um, holding holding that the unconditional love, the good, the goodness is there, but it's it's not Pollyanna-ish. So the this is from, and I like to see the timelessness of it. This is from seven. This guy Boussin lived from seventeen fifteen to seventeen eighty three. Head pillowed on arm, such affection for myself, and the smoky moon. <laughs> Now you can get, you can grasp that he has no pillow, right? So it's so cool. Head pillowed on arm, such affection for myself and the smoky moon. You know, it's all there. This is Ryokan again. Nothing satisfies some appetites. But wild plants ease my hunger. Free of untoward desires, all things bring me pleasure. Tattered robes warm frozen bones. I wander with deer for companions. I sing to myself like a crazy man, and children sing along. See, there's that incredible paradox 
and such a deep coming to terms with it. It's not Pollyannish. So being able to dwell on the goodness within us all, it brings a, a, a respect for life that, you know, life deserves. When I was um, going up to Canada uh, through Vancouver to teach a retreat with Steve on a remote island in the spring, um, the cherry blossoms were blooming. And uh, in some part of this one part of Vancouver, they've planted lots of cherry blossom trees. And they were, they had just peaked, and there are some many still on the, on the trees, but there were many on the ground. Um, and I was walking to try to get this cup of tea uh, at some shop. And there was a very old man um, outside the front of his house. And he was furious at these flowers for, you know, being, you know, like him having to pick them up. And so he was using this um, blower and he was going, too many flowers, too many flowers, too many flowers. (laughs) It reminded me of my dad when he got really old and he had this beautiful oak tree in the front of his house. And um, in the autumn, there were just so many leaves, and in a year after year, you know, having to rake them, rake them, rake them. And one time I came home, and he he had just cut it down. And I was like, Dad, are you kidding me? And he's like, I am so sick of, like, picking up these leaves. And it was so funny, because I, I felt like with this old man in Vancouver and my dad, it was like they had no idea how to ask for help. It was like, just that, the, again, that vulnerability of being old and actually not being able to keep up with it anymore. He used to be able to appreciate it, but then being able, unable to ask. Powerful. And it was just great. Too many flowers. <laughs> Too many flowers. <laughs> I mean, if you look out there, how could you say that, right? so when we look at how difficult it is for us to tune into goodness inside or outside or to tune into kindness um, one of the things that's important to keep exploring is this experiment with sending receiving and abiding and to start to to just explore what those feel like because receiving will require letting go of control and that you'll you know and, and I'm going to go into a little bit more about what how concentration our ability to concentrate relates to this but it's like what I like to do, whether I'm doing loving-kindness practice or mindfulness practice, uh, is to just experiment with how long, like how many seconds I can go with receiving before my attention wanders. You know, or just how long can you be present? How long can there, that vulnerability be there before you take a commercial? 
And it's not like you choose to take the commercial. It's like if you had control of your own remote, <laughs> you know, it would be like, you know, Channel 5 or, you know, you're ch- you're, you change the channel and it, it happens mostly by itself. So it's, it's, again, it's not to, to try to do that without any judgment, but just again and again to see, wow, that, that l- lack of control. You know, there's some way in, the, in which the system just chooses to distance itself, and that's what it means. And it's okay. But to explore it, it's really interesting. My father was so unable to receive, uh, and I had no idea how intense it was. You know, he was very, very mostly angry and hostile. And when he was dying, um, I think it was about two and a half months in Mass General in Boston. And there were times when, uh, like, a doctor would come and, you know, say to me, you know, why don't you leave the room so I can work with your dad? And I'd say, I don't, I don't think, I really think I should stay. <laughs> and they'd go, oh, no, no, no. And there was a really, really big guy, you know, kind of like from where I grew up, a tough Southie, we call them Southies, you know, just really tough. And he said, you know, get out of here. And I'm like, I really don't think you want me to leave. And he said, no, 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 leave. And I heard all this commotion and yelling and screaming. And he came out and he slammed the door. And he said, I can't believe you grew up with that guy. (laughs) I I thought you needed me in there. And then another team, a team of neurologists came in. And and there was the same, you know, commotion and screaming. And and they came out. (laughs) It's It's really funny. And this woman said, extremely hostile. <laughs> she said, I'm never coming back. <laughs> it's kind of like, you know, I'd watch them drop. and you know. So anyway, uh, it's actually quite a long story, but um, maybe the last three seconds of his life. And I think it's because they were giving him so much morphine, you know, like it was just more and more morphine, and I could feel his system relaxing and relaxing. And at the very end, it was like, I can't believe he, he managed to pull this off. He said, he whispered to me, thank you for everything you've done for me. Mm-hmm. And he'd never, he'd never been nice to me, you know. And it was like, oh my God, he did it. He received just at the last second. (sighs) Amazing. And then how much of our lives, you know, is there that, you know, tightness and just that the fear of all that comes up when we let go. It's amazing. This style of loving-kindness Brahma-vihara practice that um, we're offering that includes a lot of silence and a lot of um, inclining toward a quiet abiding um, takes a lot of trust. And it requires... um, 
making making space for something to emerge that is unknown that that we don't know what will happen next and as i said at the first night that i spoke it's like sometimes we might incline the attention toward may my heart abide in loving kindness or call it up and we might not taste it maybe for hours but it might be toward the end of a sitting or there just might be this glimpse but but you can start connecting that in, intention or inclining with this this emerging that you can see isn't in our control but there is creating the conditions for it to arise so that quiet silence is as you know Stephen and I have felt in this with this group that you're dropping into that more and more and we really appreciate it because we know in some ways that that quietness the gentleness of it the not using your willpower as much to force um, we know it's harder because it's like you don't get to grab on to as much structure and and we're encouraging you to grab onto the structure as much as you need it and that it's really helpful like we're not trying to say one is better than the other but but it's important to make space for both So we'd, we'd like to really uh, continue to encourage you to, when you can, um, kind of stay with one Brahma Vihara or with whatever, whatever style is working for you. Stay with it as much as you can. And if, if you ever get confused or are not sure where to be, you know, just, just fall back on, fall back on where it's been easy and, and um, trust that it's like you're, you're digging for water in, in one hole, you know, and that the, that the water will come from that. Um, and there will be times when you won't be able to do that, or, you're, you know, like your attention might get... Say you're doing um, one being, and then ten beings sort of rapidly flow by your mind, you know. You'll know that happens. And then sometimes it'll feel like you can have enough concentration to just shift back to one but if you don't and you feel um, that it would be better to just go a little meta to the group or just a little bit to to some people for a while um, you know that's not doing the wrong thing or that you know that's that's fine it, you just you have to learn how to um, practice. It's like it takes a long time, and as you learn new skills, it takes time. So you, it's it's not like you go to yogi jail because you sent metta to five people rather than one, right? It's not. It, it can't. There's no. There's no mistake. And that that uh, learning how helpful anchoring is. And learning how helpful pure exploration is is an art. Um, again, whether you're doing Brahma Vihara practice or mindfulness practice, so I wanted to explain that 
a little bit more in terms of um, if if we were doing a very serious samadhi practice, concentration practice, uh, it's called fixed concentration. And if this room was much darker and uh, we just had you keep coming back to looking at this light, and if knee pain appeared, you'd just come back uh, to looking at the light. And if an emotion like fear happened, you'd ignore it, look at the light. If a thought happened, you'd ignore it, you'd look at the light. Basically, okay, a sound happens, you ignore it, you look at the light. Over and over again, hour after hour, walking, sitting, you're looking at the light. But in this case, it would be the loving-kindness practice. And you just keep going back, going back, going back. And the goal of that practice as a, I have some of these things written out. Um, is rest, seclusion, solitude, ease, tranquility, calm. Um, and the reason why it brings about a calm and tranquility is because you're ignoring everything. <laughs> you know, it's like, and and there's a goodness in that. There's a that that sense of just coming back to one thing, and you'll know when you do mindfulness practice, you keep coming back to the breath or sound. We, we're doing that too sometimes. It's like you're um, really secluding the attention. Sometimes it's called seclusion. You're just pulling into one thing, and it brings about uh, stability. Another description of that that I love is if you had a, a pond. And um, if the, there was a storm, you'd see how uh, scattered the surface of the pond is, and you can't see into it, and nothing is reflected on it. Uh, so the, the untrained human mind tends to be scattered. It's like the surface of our mind tends to be like the surface of the pond in the wind or a storm. So the purpose of some concentration is to still the surface of the mind like you would like a, a, in a still day with the surface of a pond for the purpose of being able to see into it and, and to, to, to have the whole universe reflected in it. So the purpose of meditation, half of it, is, is learning how to come to stillness, come to stillness, come to stillness. So it's like in the loving-kindness practice where we're setting the stage by coming to stillness through breath, body, sound, just like you would in mindfulness practice, and then calling up the loving-kindness. And you come to deeper stillness through the loving-kindness with, um, with ourselves, our bodies, and then a benefactor when you bring that in. And that bringing, um, bringing the attention, connecting it, sustaining th- that attention, and I'm going to go into this a bit more in a few minutes, uh, that stillness allows for us to be with the movement of life. So life is alive, it's moving, um, and when we are with 
that our moment-to-moment experience, for example, or when we're doing the metta practice and we include the experience of anger, we include the experience of some pain in the shoulder, or we include a sound, um, you're moving in the direction of exploration, pure exploration, and it it brings about um, peace, it, distinguishing peace from calm. It brings about equanimity, again, distinguishing equanimity from tranquility or wisdom, distinguishing the um, wisdom from the seclusion or the ignoring. Uh, and, and, of course, we could go into all of these teachings for hours, but I wanted to bring this up because you will find that you're going to be going back between back and forth between the need to stabilize with a with the more fixed concentration, and then it, it, it'll either open itself up by itself, or there will be times when we choose for it to be more open. And, and you know, it's so hard to teach this because it's not like we always have a choice in this. It's like energy. Energy has so much to do with this, and. Um, so when we're tired, <laughs> you know, it's just like, you're just lucky if you can even barely come back to the present, right? And, and you know, talk about lowering expectation. You just have to really just lower that expectation. We should be doing trying to lower expectation all the time, but particularly when we're tired, it's like there's not enough energy. to. You don't have much choice anyway, but being able to if you can stabilize, be able to even, you know, you can say, may you be happy or may I be happy, but it could be meaning, you know, I like crackers, I like crackers, I like crackers. When we're tired, it just doesn't have any meaning, right? But having learning how to practice when we're just totally falling over is, is good practice. You know, it's it's really important. Every time you, you know, you're going like this, nodding, and every time you're like this, you're awake. And it it does something. It takes time, but it shifts things over time. When we're medium energy, you know, it's like we will find that we will do a balance of, of stabilizing, opening, stabilizing, opening. When we're really energized, we can usually... Um, open a lot more, or sometimes it's it's very interesting when you're very energized. Sometimes you'll feel very pulled in to a deeper concentration. So another another aspect of this that's so important is when you think about the word anchor. It really means that if you had a ship that was out at sea and, and it started to get, like, you know, no, really no mindfulness, no metta, uh, tired, the, the boat has to head for safe harbor and put the anchor in. And, and so this is, this is the thing. It's like when we're not as safe and protected with the mindfulness and metta, we need to really anchor and stabilize that's good practice. And then sometimes you need to leave the safe harbor and go out and explore. That's good practice. And we, sometimes we make mistakes. 
And sometimes we don't even know what we're doing. You get confused. It's like fine, just do it. The do the best you can. Sometimes you just wait. That's good practice. So it's trusting that, you know, this this all will um, unfold in the way that it needs to. It's like we get it's we get just what we need on retreat to grow. But it's not always the thing we think we should be getting. So the other aspect of the concentration that can be interesting, and again, we're not going to go into it too much tonight, but this um, the question of what attention is, is fascinating. And attention is, is implying subject and object. And so when you, when you know, like I, I joke, you know, yoo-hoo, you, you try to find your attention. It's like you're going to try to bring the attention together with something, subject, object. So that first part of a moment of concentration is called vitaka in Pali. And it's called, sometimes it's called aiming, sometimes it's called connecting. Sometimes that's all we have. So you'll connect and it'll kind of fall off. It'll connect and fall off. But you're connecting. And that's great. When you feel more deeply immersed, it'll, it, it, it's called immersion, a deeper and deeper immersion. Then the next word that's used is vichara. And it means that you can sustain the attention with whatever the attention has connected with. You can sustain it for a while. That's called vichara. So sometimes that's described as, say, you know, when you strike the bell, that's vitaka. Vichara is if you can stay with the sound. Of, and so just watch what happens when you try to stay with the sound and notice how the attention might go back and around. But concurrence is when you can stay with the whole sound, is it? So the idea is that you learn how to do that with sound, with loneliness, with your with metta, with metta for yourself, with whatever's happening. It's like, and you know, when you're doing it with loving kindness, um, like I said, there's a way in which it can feel very superficial. It'll feel deeper, and then the next concentration uh, factor, PT. Translated as rapture, <laughs> this is limited translation. Um, but there's a, there's a sense of interest. So there'll be a, a joyful interest. You can't make it happen, but um, you'll feel very interested in yourself, not in a self-centered way, but with the meta feeling. And you'll be very interested in your benefactor, or you'll you'll feel an interest in wishing all beings well. Um, if you're if you're with with loneliness, it would be like instead of a kind of disgruntled willingness to be with it, there'd be a, or getting lost with it. There'd actually be like, wow, I can actually be interested in this. You know, it's it's a shift. 
Um, and of course, that means you're more immersed in it, but you're not lost in it. And then the fourth is called sukha, and it, it's kind—it's of, a very sweet happiness from the subject and object disappears. So that, like in the metta practice, there's there really is no sense of a giver or a receiver. There's an abiding, a quiet abiding. And then the fifth, yeah, we're on the fifth. Ikagata uh, is tranquility. And there's just that ease of like one-pointedness and quiet. And so sometimes people will have a metta feeling, like and it'll feel like a sweet happiness, and then it'll disappear into a kind of quiet, just a quiet, calm tranquility. And they'll wonder, well, what happened to the metta feeling? But it, it's actually sometimes a deeper quiet. So sometimes it, it, it's called when those when the concentration, whether it's it's just if we can even aim, it's a kind of concentration to sustaining it a bit, uh, to being interested, to, to subject object disappearing. That can happen in a few seconds, and sometimes that can happen over a longer period of time. And it feels good, whether we're doing mindfulness practice or metta practice, that being protected from the hindrances will feel wonderful. And when that drops away, that sometimes we feel bereft and forlorn and, that, you know, like, what happened? But it, when it disappears... And whatever comes up, whether it's sleepiness, restlessness, aversion, attachment, doubt, whatever it is that comes up, that's good practice too. It's like the purification process. It's like um, if you had warm, soapy water and you put a cloth in it, a dirty cloth, you actually are putting the dirty cloth in, you want the dirt to come out. And that's part, a retreat is warm, soapy water. And you're putting your body, heart, and mind in it. It's like a washing machine. And so sometimes, you know, it'll feel, you know, like that it's only good practice when you're protected from the hindrances and the concentration is stronger, and then it's bad practice when all this stuff comes up. But no, we want both to be happening. And when you can, when you soften around and work with what has come up, um, you'll find that you kind of go through a, a bit of a, um, maybe a bored or fallow period, and then, lo and behold, you keep going, and it'll deepen again, and then it'll, you'll lose it. You think you lose it, but you're, you know, you're in that purification process, and then you finally open to whatever came up. Bored, fallow. It, it's just it might not be perfectly like that, but there is a there is a rhythm for all of us that happens. Uh, and part of learning how to trust your practice is getting that that's how it works. Uh, by the way, we didn't design it that way. It's just that's how it, it's not like we made this up. <laughs> I don't think we would design it that way. <laughs> so within that um, process that I just described, 
um, like I did a self retreat, well, a retreat in um, March, and there was a morning when I woke up, and I had this like a a, a person striking, you know, like striking, but it was me. It was like a cartoon, and on the on the <laughs> placard that I, I was holding that I was striking it said no more insight no more insight no and I woke up and I was like wow that's amazing you know and then um, kind of during the first sitting I did some aversion came up in the strong it was just like I am not interested in aversion and I was like what and then it came in strong it's like I'm not interested in, in aversion all day today like I'm not interested, Michelle. And it's like, but, 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 but. And it was like, okay. It was just, wow. I had hit some limit. And I had to just back up and respect it. So there, there's that sense of like forcing gentleness. But then there's, you know, the um, making effort with a respect for what's happening in, in our practice. And there are times when it really is wonderful to do it in a warrior-like way. I love it when that happens. you know. And it's not that it has to be motivated by striving, but just that you feel this protection and you feel energy and you can really work at it without necessarily um, force. And, it, and the practice requires that at times. And there are other times when it requires a gentleness, such a, a light touch. Um, and I think, again, we tend to, uh, um, with the paradox thing, you know, which is hopefully a theme of this talk, we tend to want to fall down one side or the other and say, this is the way, right way to practice. Or, you know, anchoring is right, exploring is not right, or exploring is right, anchoring is not right, or, Warrior's right, gentle isn't right. But it's not like that. It's like we have to listen to when it's time to step on the gas. And we have to listen to when it's time to break. And there are times to clutch. And of course, there are times when we don't know. And it's just like that not knowing, not knowing. I call it, I label it, not knowing, don't know. In fact, the greatest wisdom sometimes is just saying, don't know, mind. (laughs) Don't know. It's okay. Not to mention that we often have a, a preference for deep and not ordinary or ordinary. Maybe we like ordinary and not deep. But, uh, but again, there's that amazing way in which we have a preference for one and get attached, and we suffer so much. So the, this, if, you, if you reflect on the, a retreat from when you wake up to when you go to bed and how much happens, you know, and how much... Um, how much we grow in the silence.
when I did my first love and kindness retreat, um, I was in Australia, uh, and I t- I am allergic to everything. And at this place, um, I was allergic pretty much to everywhere, and it was really cold. Uh, and I would walk around outside with my sleeping bag around me, and uh, I had to have my window open in my room. I couldn't even sit in the hall, uh, and I would ha- I would almost be sitting like with my head out the window. Uh, and I had all my clothes on, so I never could wash them because it was impossible. I would I would have frozen. And one day, I think it was a month into the retreat, um, and I couldn't even eat in the dining room, so I'd bring my food up to my room. And we had corn chowder that day. I love corn chowder, and I was all happy about it. And I was, you know, doing the phrases. <laughs> so I was like, you know... <laughs> excited about this corn chowder. Uh, may I be happy, may I be peaceful. And I, I brought the corn chowder in the room and, um, I don't, you know, kind of spaced out there. And I put the corn chowder on my chair. And then I remembered I had to get something. And um, I just came back and I sat in my chair. <laughs> it was so, I can't tell you, it was so humbling and humiliating. I've been sitting for a month, you know, and so it's like, and I was like, how could I even do this? It's like, it's like how did I even pull this off? It was so awful. Oh, I, I won't tell you all the details about if I, how I decided whether to wash my pants or not. But um, I just want to just encourage you to know that sometimes when you're in, in retreat, you'll just do something that's so, like, unmindful. And you'll just think, how did I even manage to do that? Uh, and it's just, that's just what happens. <laughs> There's a... Um, maybe two things I wanted to read at the end, just to... Just to bring in what Steve was saying this afternoon and this morning about how all the Brahma Viharas are in, are in one. And this is a... There's a great haiku poet, Basho, from Japan that was a pilgrim, and his practice was really um, taking pilgrimages. And he was very old at this point when he wrote this, and he went on his last pilgrimage. And all these, and it was going to be difficult with pilgrimage in the north in the winter. And all of his friends came out to say goodbye to him, and he wasn't sure if he would ever see them again. Um, so he wrote, Spring departing, birds cry, tears in the eyes of fish. Spring departing, birds cry. Tears in the eyes of fish. You know, it's like even the fish were crying. <laughs> it's so beautiful. Just that totality of experience. And then this is a, maybe a more Western version. It's called First Song by uh, the poet Galway Canal, who is our contemporary then it was dusk in Illinois. The small boy, after an afternoon of carding dung, hung on a rail fence 
a sapped thing, weary, weary to crying. Dark was growing tall, and he began to hear the pond frogs all calling on his ear with what seemed their joy. Soon their sound was pleasant for a boy, listening in the smoky dusk and the nightfall of Illinois, and from the fields and two small boys came bearing cornstalk violins, and they rubbed the cornstalk bows with rosins, and the three sat there scraping their joy. It was now fine music the frogs and the boys did in the towering Illinois twilight make, and into dark, in spite of a shoulder's ache, a boy's hunched body loved out of a stock, the first song of his happiness, and the song woke his heart to the darkness and into the sadness of joy. So let's sit for a minute. It's time for walking and then our metta chant. So please bring your metta chants. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.